They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he'll rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid of him, or sorry, afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve. He said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pick right up with the Mark reading and stay in Mark today. No James reading, no Old Testament Mark reading. Because earlier in Mark, Jesus promised his disciples um, one of my favorite verses in these latter days. Um, In Mark 4, he says, Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except that will come to light. And so it sounds really scary, and it should sound scary if you have something secret or something in the dark. Uh, It will be made manifest. But also, there's gospel promise, not only the law in that phrase, because what it means is that uh, Jesus' promise, heard in the context of his parables and from the beginning of his ministry in Galilee, it would raise hope on the part of his disciples. And raise hope in your hearts. Now, the disciples could not, or they could anticipate a, a glorious revelation of that messianic kingdom that Jesus brought in, that he ushered in. They were standing in awe, actually, as they witnessed uh, Jesus cast out demons, like in uh, chapter 1. And, well, throughout. Most of our readings in the past few weeks have been about Jesus casting out demons. Uh, something that the Son of Man was promised to do, the Messiah. Healing the sick, you know, Jesus, very well known for healing the sick. Alexian brothers, lots of mosaics, lots of terrazzo. I actually don't know if there's terrazzo of Jesus healing anyone, but there are mosaics of Jesus healing people. Uh, Also, Jesus ruling over creation as the creator. Uh, What's an example of that? When he stills the water, when he stops the storm, he is the creator and he's here and he has power over creation. And he even raises from the dead, if you can remember from chapter 5. Jesus is the Messiah. He is man, but he is God, fully both. Now, however, his promise was less obviously associated with hope. Because what Jesus is revealing in today's gospel reading was less obviously associated with hope because it was something that the disciples would rather not see happen to Jesus. He would die, but he would come back to life. Um, Also, what this spurs on or causes, which is their human quarreling over greatness. And then finally, 
when Jesus reveals the true servant nature of discipleship and leadership. And it is within this difficult and dangerous revelation, however, that Jesus offers the truest hope that anyone could hope to find, that in Jesus' death and life, in meekness, in uselessness, is greatness. And in receiving the least is the promise that one receives God himself. He was inverting, you know, say you're up here, Jesus is up here. He was inverting human power ranking scales, you know, power pyramids, as you might see in a leadership seminar uh, PowerPoint slide. Jesus flipped it upside down. So Jesus predicts his death for the second time here in Mark 9. It's called a passion prediction. Uh, This passion prediction, it's the shortest of the three in Mark. And yet it contains the widest of the scope of these passion predictions. In the other two, Jesus names those who would kill him with frightening specificity. Didn't mess that one up. First, he says the elders and the chief priests and the scribes in chapter 8 would be the ones who'd kill him. And then later in chapter 10, which we haven't made it to yet, don't worry, we will. He says the chief priests and the scribes and the Gentiles will kill him. But in this passion prediction, he uses an even more frightening generality. He says he will be delivered into the hands of men, mankind. Jesus implicates not just religious leaders or Gentile leaders like Pontius Pilate. No, those are all, you know, other people that probably would kill Jesus, right? Other people, not me. But the ways of God are opposed to the ways of humanity and the gracious work of God is hidden in him being violently rejected by all people, not just some, even people today. Now, our world today, they have a fascination with things spiritual, but it tends to identify love with tolerance and to replace forgiveness with acceptance for how you are. Our Lord's revelation, however, reveals the true depth of the love of God. Listen close. Jesus does not tolerate sin. He does not accept sin. Rather, he chooses to die for it, and so that those who kill might be forgiven those who persecute, they might be loved. Those who live with superficial understandings of faith and discipleship, that they might be awakened, interrupted, if you will, to the depths of love and life within God's kingdom and not their own. Here, Jesus, he perceives what's going on in the hearts of his disciples. Because, uh, I don't know, like sometimes you read these the, this uh, pericope, and you kind of joke because it's like they didn't tell Jesus what they were discussing or thinking about or feeling, but obviously he knew. While they were silent and unwilling to admit it, 
The disciples, they argued with one another about greatness and probably the contingency plan of what's going to happen when Jesus dies because he keeps talking about it. You know, what's going to happen when, when the master dies, when rabbi dies? Well, using standards of human greatness, the disciples found that they were being driven apart. Jesus, however, brings them together and uses their sinful conversation as an occasion to teach them about the ways of God. The human heart has not changed over the centuries, and greatness is still often measured in ways that turn people against one another. Even in church, sometimes especially in church. Even and often, mostly, especially Christians, see everything as like this zero-sum game, where admitting weakness, admitting you were wrong, means losing your place in a power hierarchy. Our Lord, however, uses this occasion to lead us into the ways of God. He reveals that if you search for greatness hidden in the human heart, it will separate you from one another. But the gift of greatness that comes from God brings us closer to one another. It inspires humble service that forms community, and it builds up the fellowship of the church in love. Man, is it nice. I don't know if you guys heard the, the humming coming from above, but it's finally over. Uh, to be great in God's kingdom, you all, to be great in God's kingdom is to make yourself the servant of one another. To make yourself the servant of all people, just like Jesus did in his death on the cross. And how did he do this? He took on the blame, the guilt for all sin, past, present, future, and he died for it, though he himself did not sin. Through this great and only sacrifice for sin in history, Jesus then distributes that wealth of forgiveness on the cross he distributes it to Christians who have faith, who have confessed their sin and repent. He gives them forgiveness with words, his word. Whether that be the words, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, or this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of sins, or as simple as it gets, those whose sins you loose on earth, those sins will be loosed in heaven. Later, Jesus will take a child into his arms and bless the child and encourage each disciple to receive the kingdom like a child. But that's in chapter 10, not in chapter 9. The popularity of that scene makes it confusing to hear what Jesus is doing and saying in this reading. Here, Jesus is not blessing children or holding children up as examples of faith, as he is and last but not least, he is certainly not tapping into a contemporary sentimental notion of the innocence or simplicity of childhood. In fact, Jesus never does the last thing. Rather, Jesus here in this reading, he's bringing into the midst 
of a divisive argument, something that which everyone could agree on. Jesus is saying, this child to the world, in your power game, your zero-sum game, this child is nothing. The bottom of the totem pole. This child is useless, defenseless, in the way to most people, a burden. And while the disciples might argue over who is greatest among men, they can all agree that right now this child is the least. Yet, Jesus identifies with the child, the one who's valued least. Holding that child in his arms, yes. And he promises that others will come to receive God when they receive that which is least for the sake of Jesus' name. This manifests itself, I think, most concretely today in how sometimes even Christians can look down on other people's callings, other people's jobs, other people's vocations. In this way, one makes themselves just like those disciples arguing over human greatness. Example, it just isn't all right to look down on, I don't know, your secretary at work at your white-collar job simply because you went to more school than her or him, or you make more money. The secretary is doing her called job, his vocation from God. He or she is serving other people and serving the Lord through this vocation. Another example, it's not all right to look down on a mother because they are not an office worker or a salesperson or what have you. They are doing their godly, called, vocation, calling, and bearing and mothering these children. And we ought to be celebrating her in doing this in our communities. So, to end, Jesus' gesture with this child. It's puzzling. It's weird. His words are a mystery. Until that day that when he radically redefined and identified with that which is least in this world, becoming the crucified one, right? Cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. He's rejected by the world. He's rejected by the religious leaders. He's rejected by his friends, rejected by his heavenly father, and yet fiercely and faithfully, he holds on to every last sinner so that his death might be the way, the truth, the light, that the least of all would enter into the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus silences all those arguments and he reveals the radical mercy of God, the hope that lies hidden in suffering, that lies hidden in death, and finally, the resurrection, and in the suffering service of all who follow in his way. Amen.